I was at an orientation. It's my first year teaching someplace. And someone came up and saw that I was one of the new philosophy adjuncts. And the person said, hmm, philosophy, what is truth? And I thought, yeah, yeah. I was going to be congenial and say, hi, how you doing? And at that moment, the permanent philosophy professor walked up behind us and he said, what is whatness? And I think I bowed my head down and I thought inwardly, this is why people hate us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Welcome to 10,000 Places, where a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister walk into a room and who knows what we'll talk about. Aliens in the Vatican, what it means to be a theologian. We might even talk about pizza or Star Wars. Who knows? You never know. You never know. Because... The places we go. Right, the places we go. Because as we'll talk about soon enough, all the places we go are all places God has made. This is my father's world. I don't know how to lead that into yeah. what we're talking about. So today we're talking about... We're talking about Catholic identity Catholic today, right? Identity. Catholic identity. I didn't want to talk about this when this was proposed because I thought, how are you going to do that in a pod? Like, oh, I know. That's a 30-hour... It will probably be a recurring theme in this podcast. Or it could be really quick and simple. I identify as Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time, folks. We were talking before. I mean, we're a revert, a convert, and a cradle Catholic. And I think Catholicism looks different for each of us. Mm. There's a person that you ask, are you Catholic? What does that mean? The person says, I really enjoyed my Catholic upbringing. You know, we went to mass first, Holy Communion, the rosary. People say that. Someone else, what do you like about being Catholic? And they'll say, Scripture's just so wonderful. I like to read it every day. Amen. And I learn something every That's day. my Catholicism. And you ask someone else, you Catholic, what do you, what do you like about it? What does it mean to you to be Catholic? And the person says, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. I like that I one Jesus. too. Well, and even on the flip side of, you just mentioned Scripture, because yeah. if I had a dime for every time I heard this in a parish, we're Catholic. We were told not to read Scripture. Oh, wow. And so the definition of Catholicism for a generation of people is, yeah, we don't read scripture. That's what? not a thing. That's I the mean, kind of thing it, you're asking it, it about. Does help, it does help. Many times. No, that does help me understand something because, okay, so, and I, I know we keep putting off your example, Lewis, but if I could just get in there <laughs> really quick, because this is, I think, hits on what you're talking about. I began my studies in scripture. and As a Protestant. As a Protestant. And then when I became Catholic, I knew of this sort of Catholics don't read scripture. I never got the sense necessarily, which I'm not disputing what you're saying, actually, it helps make sense, is there seems to be no desire to get into the scriptures, because on the one hand, they seem to Catholics to be befuddling, and on the other hand, they seem to have some sort of sense that they don't have to. And, and also this, our priests don't preach on it. Right. They, and, they moralize. And so, like, I went for—so so one of my, like, stated goals as a theologian publicly and personally— in my professional life as a professor, and then whatever I publish or do on this podcast or whatever, is to bring Scripture back to the center of the conversation about theology. Right, which is what I think Vatican II is trying to do as well. Right, absolutely. And so I think this is a very good thing to unpack, because if people are thinking they're like supposed to stay away from it, even, not just that they don't feel called to it or they feel a little bit bewildered by it, but that they just don't Catholics don't read scripture. I mean, that's crazy. This has to do with history too. Ronald Knox, the Knox translation of the Bible, the English translation, I would recommend it's a great translation, but if you ever buy it, it comes with little essays he wrote about how hard it was to translate the Bible because we use scripture in our liturgy. And when you do that, you just can't change the translation. 
And so one of the things he mentions in his essay is for several centuries, there's been a large part of the world, Protestant ecclesial bodies, that are using the Bible as a weapon against us. And so historically, there developed a kind of distaste for the Bible or concern that, well, this is something that people use against me. And so I avoid it for this historically contingent right, reason. Right. And I think this is one of the, the troubles with identity is that sometimes, and especially in the American culture where it's, it was hard to be Catholic in America because of the way the Protestants viewed the Catholics. I mean, there were legitimate concerns that the Pope was going to set up an alternative Vatican. This is, you know, well in, into the 1860s, 1880s. And by legitimate concerns, you mean like people actually worried? Actually yeah, worried, yeah. promulgated the fear and so forth, and especially as waves of Catholic immigrants started to reach this country. And so the Catholics then took a position of defensiveness and started to clarify, you know, if the Protestants are for Scripture, therefore we must be against. And I think we, we emerged as Catholics started to become more, quote-unquote, accepted. Of course, two things happened. One, it did give us the freedom to explore our tradition more deeply, but it also unfortunately opened up a door for what we now call a kind of Catholic liberalism. I'm curious, do you think that this is a American, because that's what you kind of couched it, but do you think it's an American phenomenon, a Western phenomenon? Like, do you see this as something that happened in Europe and stuff as well? Or I don't know the European so I'm sure it happens in other Ronald, cultures. Ronald but... Knox thinks it's happened in Britain. Yeah. Okay. When he's writing about his English translation for the, yeah. Which makes sense too, because that's a predominant Protestant culture. My suspicion is it's happening less in, it would have happened less in, in Italy, which was more predominantly well, Catholic than the place where Catholics were the minority. It fits in with, because part of what Vatican II was, was a change in the posture of the church towards the world. So after Trent, we kind of came in on ourselves and and really just kind of paid attention to ourselves and didn't get, because we'd lost the ear of the world in some sense, right? And so there is this sense in which Vatican II and what, what John the Twenty Third was doing was trying to get us to get back to that thing where we are part of what the world consults when like we have things to say and to move outward focusing again. I mean, you think about like Orestes Bronson, right? Who's a great American apologist who was dealing with a lot of these things. And one of his clarion calls is like, this is all clear if somebody would just explain this to everybody, which he did in a very entertaining and sometimes vicious way. <laughs> Not vicious in terms of anti-virtuous, but like, like vehement, I guess is what I'm saying. When this gets played out in most people's lived experience, what happens is there was never a thought that scripture is bad and so it's something to avoid. Right. It's this understandable reaction that happens historically, given the way that Catholics are mixing in or not mixing in, as the case may be with the society. And so what you have today is you have these potential stereotypes that people could recognize. They're, they're sad that, you know, I'm Catholic. What do you think about Hosea chapter two? It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It says somewhere in the Bible. I don't know where it says it, right? And so you can have these stereotypes, lamentable ones. Well, Catholics don't read the Bible. Or what do you mean my savior? What do you mean my walk with Jesus? Or personal, yeah, personal language. Yeah. Around, and, yeah. and I think yeah. this is changing, thankfully, thanks to new evangelization and just the holiness of many people in the new generation being held up by the graces God is giving us. But I think these things are recognizable stereotypes, right? Yeah, and Lewis, I think you've hit on what exactly the new evangelization is when John Paul talks about we need to repropose the gospel to the Christian church, mm, it's, it, uh, yeah. to, to the Catholic church even, right? Is that the gospel got lost 
whether it was in the United States, the Catholics being a cultural and religious minority against a more dominant Protestant worldview, or simply because we've been so amassed under the, we've had so many traditions kind of built up around us that we've lost what those traditions are ordered toward. Well, and you can see that in Europe generally because, you know, I mean, maybe not so much in Italy, but like Germany becomes almost entirely Protestant. Right. France becomes secular. And, you know, Britain, I mean, that's the fight between basically the Anglicans and the Calvinists, the Presbyterians, and then this like, you know, Commonwealth Puritan group that, you know, goes across for religious freedom and becomes America. So like this is a kind of a Western thing where Catholicism went from in almost the span of like 50 years, one of the most important cultural powers and influences to having very limited reach to very particular regions. Mm -hmm. And even in those regions, having to navigate all kinds of political things going on. That's a serious shift in the world. Yeah, Most of the things that people lay at the doorstep of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, you could pretty much put at the doorstep of the Reformation. Yeah, yeah. So I think the problem is the custom is communal. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. It is. It's the way that you express what you do with other people. But then you forget why you do it. It persists as a practice without an understanding of its inner right. animating principle. And so you can have people who really, in some sense, do feel at home in the church. And they are theologically part of the mystical body of Christ because they're being baptized and confirmed in the church. And yet to think about them as part of the mystical body, they're not even aware of their head, right. who is Christ, right. right? Yeah. And there's also another question I think in there is, is at what point does the tradition, that small T tradition, is it reformed, mm -hmm. brought back to its original purpose or just cast aside? Well, see, after Vatican I, this whole like kind of Thomistic move brought many good things and many bad things. But one of the things it led to was the ressourcement which was this movement within theology for this going back to the sources, the ad fontes, or the founts of Christianism. So this is when the patristics get brought back into the conversation. The, the patristics are the early church fathers. Right, right. right. Yep. And so like this is the work of like Henri de Lubac and Chenu and names that nobody listening to this podcast probably <laughs> cares about, Daniel Lu. But like part of what we had to do as we were figuring this out was we had to go back to because what do you do when you have a tradition you have a tradition so you don't have to keep re-explaining to yourself why you do something over and over and over again yeah. that's what it's for that's yeah. what symbols are for yeah. so you don't have to i don't have to have and also i mean this is the plus and minus of the incarnational development of our faith right positively the faith is instantiated in particular people and cultures and right. families. However, sometimes we take those instantiations as the gospel themselves. I would mm. say that like really radical Thomism is a perfect example of this. And that was part of what the ressourcement was, was responding to is when the church felt the pressure of the philosophical hostility of the 19th century. I mean, Attorney Patris is in some ways a child of this era we receded into scholastic Thomism and said that was the philosophy that answered everything. And it has all these answers to these modern questions. And so Leo XIII promulgates this thing that says, basically, modern philosophy has done a certain thing. Thomism is the answer. But then what all these other people came along and said, like, no, it doesn't answer a lot of these questions. We need something else. And they started going back to the fathers, which Attorney Patri says, this is the fathers cast through the scholastic doctors. What would the person, average person in the pew, and what is the, the impact on them 
of the church is putting Thomas as the central focus oh, that's a really interpreter. Good question. Yeah. I'll let you think about that while I answer an easier question. Yeah. Okay. I think being people who are just, I want this or that, right? If this is important, this other thing's not important. We do this sort of thing often and it's easy and it's fast, but it's also lazy and dangerous. And so I think, well, rosary, well, adoration. Okay. These are fine. This is Catholic. It's like, well, actually it's about Jesus. Okay. Jesus, forget about that stuff. And so there's typically this thought that, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this ritual person. That's what it means to be Catholic. And you can do your me and Jesus kumbaya circle over there. Like that's not real stuff. And the other reaction on the extreme pole on the other side, which is also misguided is I just need Jesus. What's all this accretions of right, man and right. junk? Yeah, right. And so I think the ramification of what happens here is you have to say it with every new generation. Why do we do things in the family this yes, way? Yes, that's mm-hmm. it right yeah. there. That's yeah. it. Jesus we need to here, reestablish but... our traditions in their roots, yeah. which is always re-preaching the gospel. Right. And this is how you lose people. You have people who think, well, I get a clear understanding of my relationship with Jesus at this non-denominational congregation. I'm going there. So that's right. one thing that happens. They don't think they're getting Jesus. The other problem is you have someone who leans into and understands how important this is for our communal lived life. And this is, in some ways, what Christ is calling us to do as part of his body. These are the people that they say, don't like, all I need is the rubric. All I need yeah. is this form of the liturgy. All I need is that, you know. And neither of those approaches are necessarily wrong in terms of personal devotion, but we come these kind of like responses to a kind of galvanizing of a response to the kind of problem that we're talking about. Yeah. What is essential gets lost in that. Imagine a young newlywed couple looking at a couple who's been married for 50 years and watching them for a day, and watching the quiet way they're together, and maybe some of the odd things they seem to do around each other, and then wondering, gee, I hope that's not us in 50 years, or wondering, what is that, right? Right. The interior life in this example of the 50-year married couple could be one that's deep and rich, and they know each other so well, they've developed this understanding of this is how we are together, and the newlywed couple doesn't see anything. It's boring, it's non-communicative. They don't get it. It's not just because of how the mass looks today. Anytime there's a new generation, They show up in a mass that's been developing for 2,000 years, and they think, what is this? This is grandma. I I don't get it. It's not alive. It's not engaging my emotions. Or And then they start saying things like, everybody's just going through the motions, and it's just rote and stuff like this. And it's like, I said those kinds of things when I wasn't Catholic yet. When I become, there are people in the mass who are practically having mystical experiences. You got to be able to like suss out what is, what's really going on there. And so if you look at it purely from the outside, it will look like people are just going through motions and that they don't mean any of the things they're doing. But when you actually get to know Catholics and find out, no, there are many people who are just absolutely devoted to their faith. Because like what I tell Protestants and Catholics is if you're wondering if there are people who are really just going through the motions, you'll find them in both places. Oh, yeah. And if you're looking for people who love Jesus and that's all they think about is what they eat and breathe and sleep. You'll find that in both places too. It's not that. Mm -hmm. So what I think creates this kind of disconnect though, is that the kind of solemnity that the mass has developed into in most places is that experience of deep devotion. And that's what it's for. And that's what it's aimed at. But if someone is not formed into that, if someone's not told that that's what's going on, Mm -hmm. they could easily misunderstand what a mass is doing. And think it's just people going through the motions. And, and the Catholic themselves. Yeah. Right. Who could who just be. Grow, in and the so motion. they grew up around it and they didn't see any of that. Then somebody comes along and says, like, yeah, Catholics don't really care about their faith. They're just going through the motions. Like, yeah, I know. And when I go to your church, 
everybody cares about all the emotions. And, you know. I think there's also, I mean, there's a reason specifically regarding the mass, why the early church in the, what do we now call the RCA process, what they would have called the catechumenate, would have not gone to mass. They would have been introduced to the mass at a certain point and their formation. Which was called the mass of the catechumens. Right. And then at the end of the homily, they would be dismissed. So you may see in your parish today, there is a dismissal, and that is because the church recovered the catechumenate after Vatican II, and so the, the catechumenate, who is not fully initiated, does not participate in the mysteries of the, of the liturgy. They're dismissed at that. And in the Eastern liturgy, there's even a relic of this where the deacon will come out and say, the doors, the doors, which is an indication yeah, right. the doors are to be closed, and those who are not yet accepted the table of the Lord. Now, this may seem unhospitable to some, but the Mass is a mystery into which one has to be formed. And it's sometimes pearl before swans. Yeah. yeah. And one, it's protecting those people. And two, they haven't assented to it yet. Yes. Right. And I'll just add a little bit of the historical context as well to that. Like, they're also, this developed out of a highly persecuted church. Right. People who were even catechumens begin as auditors and they are allowed to come, but they can't participate in any way. And they have a sponsor. Who, right. when it comes time to be a catechumen, yep. will testify we'll that they've been yes. living by Christian ethics for like one to two years. Yep. I mean, this is in the traditions of Apollotus. And why do that? And it sounds like they're saying, like, I thought Christ was for everybody. And now you're saying they got to jump through all these hoops. Well, when people might come in and inform what you're doing and get you all massacred, you have to make sure that you're protecting yourself. Also, when people are entering a religion that might get them killed, you need to make sure that they know what's going what's on. Go, right. into, so then yeah. they would move from auditor to catechumen. And then when it was finally ready, when the catechesis period was done, they would move from catechumen to elect. And they, were, they still weren't allowed to stay for the mass of the Eucharist, right. but they'd be taken to a separate part and begin training in the right. liturgies. And then at Easter, when they were received, they could then go into the full mass, right. and then they started mystagogy, yeah, and one which of is the, training in the mysteries. Right, and one of the – I'm of the opinion that the recovery of what we now call RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, has actually not been fully implemented yet. Hmm. I think you're right. Because it's, in, it's meant to model that. And, and it, it's, Plus, we're not doing the exorcisms they had to go through. Yeah. <laughs> you should be. They're in the rights. I know yeah. they're they in are. the rights. I'm being somewhat. I know. RCIA is uh, primarily didactic, which is good, but it's yes. missing these other pieces. Yes. And, yeah. I, and so, it, but it's interesting is I think it's the work of the spirit as the church exists in a more secular, pagan kind of age. We shifted, we're recovering what the church did. Yes, in a pagan culture, in a pagan secular culture. Right. And again. so, the, what do the scrutinies look like to someone who doesn't know what's going on? right? Who may have been a Catholic their whole life, but they see these elect come up and receive these scrutinies. Yeah. And so the scrutinies, they, right, are the, the, they're the inquiry that happens on the third, fourth, and fifth Sunday of Lent that are attached to particular right. gospels. And that might just look like some goofy tradition. And some Catholics have never seen it because pastors Pas right, don't right. do the scrutinies. And yet this is part of how they developed in the early church a way to make sure that these people are always being told what they're Getting themselves yes, into yes, yeah. right, and so then the response, which is consummated in the in the reception of the Eucharist, is free, like marriage, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the we, we do marriage prep. If it's done well, it's to illumine the mind, to apprehend the good of marriage, and form the will to make a free act of consent to that which the Church understands as having yes. been revealed about marriage. Yeah, and baptism is the same way; it's the same right. kind of sacrament. This really good. I want to paint a picture, right? A little metaphor. And then examine what the metaphor might be telling us about 
what happens to us and how we might be able to get over the problems we have when our identity in some ways is fragmented because we think, well, it's the ritual. Well, it's Jesus. And we don't see how they go together. And so Catholics can talk past each other and talk past non-Catholics. Imagine a married woman. And let's say this married woman, she's fine with her husband, doesn't really think about him or talk to him or anything. But once a week, the marital act, right? They'll come together in the marital embrace. She's got that going. Do you love your husband? Yeah. You know, that's what she does, right? Now, let's say during the week, the husband, when he's at work, gets talked up, gets chatted up by a female coworker who's just super into him. It's like she's having an emotional affair with him. She knows all kinds of stuff about him. She's asking about his day. She knows what happened when he broke his arm when he was eight years old. She knows all these things. In some senses, we would say the coworker cares more, knows more about this man, right? And yet she has none of the real connection, the physical union that the wife has. And so in some senses, the wife is closer, but we would see there's something missing. Their marriage is clearly not firing on all cylinders. This is Catholics and Protestants. Man, while you were talking, just it was just like exploding in my mind. If you want to talk at the level of what Catholics and Protestants are doing down at the level of culture and kind of your comment in the pews and, and sort of thing, you're absolutely right. But what Catholicism is about, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak a little bit critically of our Protestant brothers, but they are our brothers and sisters, but they think that, well, the marriage should just be the thing with the coworker. Mm-hmm. That's what the marriage should look like. Yeah. And the other stuff is just kind of like whatever. Yeah. And then it's not that Catholics think, no, it should just be the ritual thing and we don't need all that stuff with the coworker. The whole Catholic identity, that body and soul both matter, that the physical and spiritual realm are brought together. And this is why we're so sacramental. The Catholic identity is that you have to have both. Yeah. This pulls out, like they're both messed up. Right. The coworker is the Protestant who reads the Bible, who loves Jesus, who always talks about the man, but doesn't have participation in the mystical body. Right, which is the sacrament of the Eucharist, most importantly. And the poorly catechized Catholic who only thinks ritual is what makes me Catholic is the married woman who doesn't think she needs to even talk to. Like, why read the scripture? Why talk about Jesus? We do the unitive act every week at Mass. Yeah, it's and to put it a little bit more explicitly in the language of intimacy, right? In, in marriage, the the marital act is an embodied giving and receiving that should characterize the entire marriage. Mm. So the, the intimacy, right, I'll define intimacy as, just for our purposes here, as being fully known and knowing another. And our relationship I with love the that. Lord is so JP2. It, right. And it's so, it's so Paul. Yeah. And Not it, only know, but known by him. Known by him. And, yeah. And so part of the Christian life at the heart of the Catholic endeavor is to first, we are known by God. That is an objective reality. Right. We are known as sons and daughters. And in God, love is knowledge. You, so exactly. It's who experiential. First, who loved us first. We love because he loved us first. I think this is somewhere in scripture, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> and, and so we're, we're aligning the missing piece, right? And this is, Pope Benedict talks about this in Deus Caritas S when he says, the heart of Christianity is an encounter with a person and an event, is to open myself up to receive that, be, allow myself to be known and to respond by knowing the Lord. Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the ways that we can start to address this is to kind of shift maybe the grounds of interpretation or, or the framework of understanding. Because why the scriptures? Well, because the scriptures are the revelation of God. You go to the scriptures because that's where you get to know this guy. Yes, exactly. And, and to pull that analogy, when I'm in relationship, when we're in relationship here, right, even as we're having this conversation, 
we are revealing ourselves Absolutely. to each other and to you, the listener. The boundaries are different, right. right? Because we're not in an intimate relationship, but we're constantly revealing ourselves one to the other. Well, I mean, okay, so like God is Trinity, right? right. If I can get just really theological for a second, Do it. right? So God is Trinity, which means that the foundation of all reality, the fundamentum of reality is that God is an eternal relationship. relationship. And what is in a relationship? Well, it's self-communication. The Father speaks the word who is the Son, and then coming forth, processing forth from both of them, not in time, but in eternity, so always have been, is the bond of love between them. And just to, to pick up my, my analogy, when I reveal my, myself, it is within, it's, it's limited, it's bounded. Right. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have an unbounded revelation right. there, there's, of each there's other. Only, there's only two distinctions. One is unbegotten, the other is begotten, and then another is filiated or produced in the relationship of the two. And that's what makes them distinctive personal beings. But otherwise, the Father is fully divested within the Son and the Son and the Father within the Spirit, and the Spirit culminates the Trinity. And so all relation is eventually self-gift. Right. And all love is reception and return of that gift, Right. Teresa of Avila says something along the lines of to love is to, to know and be known and getting at this whole principle. And so like if we could understand that these traditions and customs, whatever they are, if we can understand though that all of these things are like date night, are like the morning cup of coffee, are like the planned conversation when you're away on business or whatever, they are not themselves the thing, but they are. To grow out of. Right. The thing that you put in place to make sure that self-gift and reception and gift back is constantly happening. And the Mass is the ultimate act of that because, like the marital act, it is the ultimate giving and receiving of self. It's a physical union. Right, right, which we are physical and spiritual. And so, like, returning to this notion that these traditions are meant to be invitations, even when they're on pain of sin, right. because there are consequences if you don't uphold traditions right. in your own marriage. Right. Anybody who's married. You have to bind yourself to something. Right. And, yeah. and so like if you don't call me back, it's not like, well, I just think that's a meaningless ritual. You know I love you. No, you call your <laughs> wife back because she called you, right? And she expects you to call her back. Yeah. So there's always things that are conditioned and that are necessary for the flourishing of the relationship. And that's what these traditions do. This is like we get, we talked about penance at one point. Penance is not us doing some sort of meritorious act to get God to love us again, penance is an invitation to reopen ourselves to the grace and love of God. And so these traditions, whether they're sacraments and thus have absolutely ontological status and do things, or are imposed by the church or imposed by a parish or imposed by one's own individual, like morning prayer or whatever, are all meant to open us up to receive the Lord and to give back as we can, which is to give our own selves, which he gave us in the first place. Yeah. And I think one thing to help as a practical activity, a mental activity to get over this, if I'm this Catholic, so I'm the adult revert, I went through this. This is how I experienced this kind of mental picture is to imagine going to a wedding, knowing that the union of the couple is what everyone's there for. And this picture helps me to see clearly what I'm doing when. I'm at the mass. Imagine going to someone's wedding, like your best friend, and you think, I don't care about singing. <laughs> oh, you wanted a gift? Eh, I'm not going to yeah. give you a gift. Yeah. Imagine you want to sing. You want to bring a gift. Right. 
You want to pay attention to all these things because you love these people. Can but- we just skip the part where they say I do? Yeah. yeah. Get, get right to that. Just get to that part so we can get on. I want to like- do the electric slide on the dance floor. <laughs> right, right. I don't know how that's persisted. Yeah. <laughs> it is a wedding feast, right? From Revelation. And so I think this is what works for me. If you can think of something, this in particular, or something like it, it can help you remember I'm unifying with Jesus and through Jesus to the entire communion of saints. And in a particular way to the mystical body of Christ, everyone with me in the pews who's also a professed, confirmed Catholic. Having whatever metaphor you have in mind can help you remember, this is what the ritual means. This is how I'm expressing the love. And it's about Jesus who I'm loving in this act. Yeah. And this is this is deep in the tradition, but it's in my mind the way JP2 puts it, because I just read his document on the, was it the 40th anniversary of Sacra Sanctum yeah, Concilium? Yeah. What, what's the document called? Spiritus et Sponsa. Spiritus et Sponsa. Jinx. <laughs> But uh, well, that podcast is over. Then we can't talk. <laughs> Buy me a coke. Buy me a coke. So he talks about this, and I remember actually for me the first time I ever really encountered this, and it was before I was Catholic, and it started to awaken that desire to be Catholic. Was Maximus the Confessor who talks about the Mass as this cosmic event, and so this is what JP two also says in the, in, in Spiritus Esponsa that we are being brought up into because it what does Revelation reveal that there's actually an altar in heaven. Yes. And that there is actually set times that certain worship acts are performed. It's very ordered. Every hour on the hour, they cast their crowns and they say these words, like this very rubric worship before the throne and the Lord's opening scroll. And when we enter into the mass, that altar becomes that altar up on high. That is the altar in the sanctuary. The mass is this cosmic event. And when we get that foretaste, it is the foretaste of the ultimate culminating marriage banquet of Christ and the bride, which will go on forever in in the beatific vision, right? And so if we could reorient ourselves to understanding that the mass is the cosmic event of worship Mm -hmm. that is eternal in some sense, that goes on forever, that has always been going on, because the lamb who was slain before the foundation of all creation, as it says in Revelation, is the mass is performing the ever-ancient, ever-new act of heaven itself. Yeah, and it happens in the church, right? Because we're united with Catholics all around the world that, you know, it's it's 8 o'clock morning mass somewhere right, right now. Right, Like, right. no matter what time we're at, we're listening to this at or we're speaking from. But this from the rising me, of the sun to, to the setting, setting yeah, a perfect yeah. sacrifice might be offered. Right. This actually has me thinking about another area where sometimes I think Catholics are particularly susceptible to identifying themselves with, and that is the kind of conversation of law versus grace. And I'm a little out of my depth here, so I'm very much open to correction. But in the the law, scripturally speaking, seems to be pedagogical. The law is meant to teach us, but it's sort of like a training wheels. Okay, this is really funny. What do you mean by the law here? So let's use it broadly. I think both the Old Testament law. Well, I just think it's funny because this is- But also the rituals, the, the church's law. Right. Because this is how Paul explains the law in Galatians. Yeah. He calls it a pedagogos, yes. which is where we get the word pedagogy. But literally and a, meant and a peg. Oh, sorry, you're going to well, literally yeah. means to lead the child. And the pedag. But there was an there's a person in the ancient world called a pedagogos, pedag- yes, who yeah. would who would lead the child. So he'd be a servant or a slave. You probably know all about this because this was probably the case in the Greek stuff that you've learned. The church's catechetical methodology right. is based on this. And so so the servant of the family would take the the matriarch and patriarch's child. And walk them safely to school, wait with them while they're at school, and then bring them back, okay? And to keep them safe. So it's a, And to um, teach by example. 
Right. And yeah. they would, and what'd you learn about in school and blah, blah, blah. And so like, it's a custodian, an educating custodian, a pedagogy custodian, you might say. And so Paul says this pedagogos, this law took us to this moment where we could meet Messiah. I think the church continues in her law yes, to take the, us to the moment where we can meet Messiah. And that's the distinction between Catholics and Protestants, to be kind of generic, is that I think a Protestant might say, maybe consciously or unconsciously, that you know, with Christ, the law passes away. The Old Testament and, and so law. We're now in the, yes, right. But, they wouldn't say that, but yeah. But we're now in this era of grace, mm-hmm. right? And so the law is less important. Where the Catholic understanding is, no, 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 no. The human person is in his or her development still needs the law right. to get them to grace in a perhaps, let's say, a mm-hmm. personal encounter. Well, I mean, no, no Protestant, when you push them, that's kind of like serious about their faith, will say, we don't have to do anything according to rules and regulations. Right. They're still going to say, you can't steal, you can't murder, you can't you know, do the marital act before marriage, like they'll still have rules and laws and regulations. And if someone just eschews those, then their salvation might be in question. And so the funny thing about the whole grace and law conversation is that fundamentally Catholics and Protestants agree. Agreed. Grace is the thing that saves us. Yes. But the difference is what brings about an encounter with grace? For the Catholic Church, and I would say for Scripture and the tradition that upholds the Catholic Church's teaching, there are encounters that are meted out through the following of laws. And I think for our question or here— Or works or whatever are, you want to call yeah, it. Sometime, I see sometimes an experience of ministry that there are Catholics who identify Catholicism and its essentials too much with the law. Yes, so and if, that does create a legalism, correct. which is a legitimate critique from Protestants and Catholics, though. Yes. I have absolutely confronted other Catholics for being legalistic and pharisaical because, that no, you can't legislate salvation and you can't legislate personal devotion like that. You can't do it. But like at the bottom line, we all know we are saved by grace, but works conform us to that grace. Mm-hmm. And this is why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works and wills within you, right? It's both. And this is why, so the only time sola fida actually happens in scripture, faith alone, it's in James 2.24, where he says, so that you see that I am not justified, same word that Paul uses when he says justified by faith through grace alone, grace alone's in there. So you see, I am not justified by faith alone, but also by works. And that's the second time he said that basic same sentiment. And if you read the whole passage, his whole passage clearly says, you got to like live your faith or you're not justified. Yeah. Go to uh, mass. Go to mass. <laughs> Receive the Eucharist. And not because, the poor. not because that's what Catholics do. Right. Yeah. But because these are the acts that conform you to grace and your ultimate destiny, which is to become Christ. Right. That's the place that we're all supposed to end. That's the, that all of us become conformed to Christ and that these laws are given by those who are the stewards and pastors and shepherds of the people of God, the flock, to help them have moments built into their lives that create encounters with grace. And the Mass, of course, is the source and summit of that. And I'd like to hear all of you on this. I think in the Catholic tradition, we recognize the various ways law and culture form us for that encounter. But there's also, I think, a particularity, which is why the Catholic tradition 
has a vast array of spiritualities. Mm. And I think this is an imperfect image, but sometimes I think of the, uh, the spiritualities in the church as a mountain by which the mountain is Christ, and we're all coming up from our vantage point. And so let's say the Franciscan tradition is going to focus, not exclusively, but primarily on Christ and his humility and his poverty. Mm-hmm. One might say the Dominican tradition focuses on Christ the teacher. And there's a, a tension there, and, and maybe we can practically close this out with some reflections on this. The tension is that I have to recognize that, yes, this is the way Christ is speaking to me. When I'm attracted to Christ in the manger and his poverty, that is the way I'm being personally led to an encounter with Jesus. But I can't forget what the other spiritualities in the church are teaching me. And so this devotion or that devotion may work for me. It may be the way in which, an embodied way in which I'm being brought to an encounter with Christ, but I don't need to necessarily impose that on someone else. Yes. So maybe we could just close with some practicals on that. I mean, I think that would be the source of legalism to say that my interpretation of this law or this practice or this this custom is the one that you all have to do, right? I wouldn't say it's the definition of legalism. I would say that's one form of legalism. I think practices in self-knowledge help here. Am I the kind of person who really gets a lot out of scripture? Am I the kind of person who is more, my routine gives my life its order? You can ask yourself these types of questions, and what happens then is you start to see where it is I can get Christ speaking to me clearly. And when you have these acts of self-reflection, most people realize, when I come to see this is true about me, I had to learn that, mm-hmm. which means typically by natural inference, I realize not everyone's like this. And so it means Christ doesn't change. He's always out there. But what I've learned is this is the way it's easiest for me to hear what he's saying to me. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe what is essential about being Catholic that all these traditions are pointing to up the mountain is, as you read from Deus Caritas Est, it is an encounter with a person and an event. The whole life of the Catholic Church is meant to bring people, to facilitate or steward people into an encounter with the living Jesus. Right, and that's why Christ can be found in 10,000 places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we find him, we have to end up together. Right. right? It's not a me and Jesus church. We're a body. We're shoved together. We're stuck with each other. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We got to do it together. Yes. (laughs) Justin, you want to take us out? Yes. So as we go forth until next week, continue to find Christ in 10,000 places. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.